Welcome into episode 73 of the Landscape Photography Show, and in this podcast episode, we're talking with photographer William Neal, and that's probably a name that you know, and it's a name that I've known for several years, following William's work since I began photography way back in film and high school, and just knowing his progression through photography and his style has always been inspiring to me. In this episode, we talk about kind of like the idea of fashion, the cyclical patterns of styles and approaches to photography that may or may not come up over and over again throughout the history of photography. We also talk about William's book, Light on the Landscape. If you want a link to that book, find it in the show notes to this episode at davidjohnstonart.com slash podcast. And also we talk about how locations may or may not define style or subject matter that you gravitate to in landscape photography. The Landscape Photography Show is a podcast where you can listen to your favorite photographers talk about their journey in photography. It's a place where you can be inspired and also learn how to take better photos. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey, welcome into the podcast, everybody. Today, we're joined by William Neal. And and William, I've been a big fan for as long as I can remember when I got started in photography and specifically gravitated towards landscape photography when I was doing some film work in a high school class that I kind of fell into. I don't want to say I chose it by any means, uh, but once I was in it, I finally loved it and digging into the history of, of, you know, photography and, and who are some of the I would say trailblazers and what we see now is landscape photography and artistic nature photography. Um, your name came up a lot and I'm very excited, humbled and, um, ready to talk to you. So thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. I'm excited to be here. Why don't we get started just by talking about if anyone is unfamiliar, how you got started in photography? I'm sure you've mentioned it several times before, but give us a background on what that path was for you getting into photography. Well, I began taking photography serious when I got my first camera. I hate to tell you how long ago, but in uh, 1974, Mm. and I was in college and I started getting into photography because I was backpacking Uh, during the summers. I worked and lived in Glacier National Park and North Cascades National Park uh, during my summer uh, summers in between college sessions and uh, uh, started backpacking all through the backcountry on my days off and wanted to show people where where I'd been. So it was a simple matter of recording my my. trips. And then, you know, as I went through college, uh, I took a few photography courses. And but by the time I graduated uh, in 1976, I was hooked on it and and wanted to be a photographer. Um, My degrees in environmental conservation, which I never really used, except it, it does inform my, my knowledge about nature and the landscape. Um, about a year after I graduated from college, I got a job for, with the National Park Service in Yosemite National Park, and that was in 1977, and 
that was a big, uh, big move for me. And I've lived in the area since then, which is obviously a very long time. Uh, within a few years of living in Yosemite, I had been taking my film in for processing at the Ansel Adams Gallery in Yosemite. And uh, in 1980, I ended up getting hired as a photographer there. And that was really the, the beginning of my career. I got to meet Ansel Adams and a lot of the uh, people around him. And I was around for his workshops, uh, listening to lectures, uh, looking at lots of photographs, looking at Ansel's photographs. One of my jobs at his gallery was basically as the curator. So I, I showed work to collectors and I hung shows. So I'm sitting in there in my mid to late 20s, uh, uh, meeting great photographers and looking at great photographs. And, and I refer to that five years I worked at Ansel's Gallery as my, uh, my master's degree. There's a lot to unpack in just that, I feel like a very short history, just a blip on your radar. Um, one of the first, first thoughts that comes to my mind is, you know, you mentioned you began, I think you said 1974, was it that you started? Yeah. Okay. So I was born in 1987. Um, <laughs> not trying to make you feel old, but, but it just begs the question. I, I've always wondered what some of the guys who, who younger photographers look up to, how, how is the younger generation of media influenced, um, materialistic, um, just painting it with a generalized paintbrush here, not trying to call anyone out, but highlighting myself, you know, I am in that generation. I am consumed in social media. How do you see photographers now and, and what they gravitate to not just like film and, and the emotion of a photograph or a composition, but also the shareability, the likability, if you will. Well, those factors are a, a big influence and it. it's a e very easy and, and good in a democratic way that people have access to social media where they can share their work. Uh, you know, being attached to the, the popularity uh, does influence how you photograph. And one of the things that worked well for me is that, well, obviously social media wasn't there, but I, uh, I didn't have to worry about making an income. While I worked at Ansel's Gallery, I just got immersed in, in the art of landscape photography from masters and being in an amazing landscape like Yosemite. So I'm not sure there's uh, a good way to kind of rein that in once the cat's out of the bag with social media. I'm certainly attached to it too. I, I want to remain relevant. I'm not starting a career, but I want to continue my career. So it has value for me. Um, but I feel like I, I was able to establish a sense of um, my own perspective developing skills and, and vision to express that. So, um, you know, people that jump into making a living at it right away, especially those that are, you know, leaving jobs and becoming landscape photographers, you know, are, are 
faced with that dilemma. But I do see some balance to that. There's a lot of clicks on, on popular type of images, but there's a lot of upcoming photographers that are doing uh, very strong work. They have a very th- uh, strong environmental ethic. They're interested in uh, uh, something beyond the icons and the cliches in places like Yosemite. So there's uh, it's a double-edged sword, put it simply. In terms of, of some of the younger people producing more thought-provoking images, I almost relate photography subjects to fashion and, and people always say fashion comes up and, and kind of regenerates itself throughout the years. Do you see different subjects doing the same thing, becoming popular at times and then waning at other times? Well, yes. Uh, for a long time, I've been uh, inspired to do intimate landscapes and I was heavily influenced by Elliot Porter, who was way before my time. Uh, in fact, the first essay I ever published in Outdoor Photographer was called Intimate Landscapes, uh, which was inspired by Elliot Porter's book, Intimate Landscapes, um, because I wanted to express that type of photography as as an alternative to you know, the more cliched work of a place like Yosemite or other national parks. Um, yeah, so I see the that a lot of photographers are currently talking about uh, the slow movement photography, intimate landscapes, um, which I think is a very positive uh, movement, but, but you're right. You know, the certain types of styles, uh, types of subjects come back into play. You know, if you look at Elliot Porter's uh, book on Appalachian wilderness, I believe it's called, from long ago, it's all you know, forest floors and, and trees and branches and different seasons. Um, and a lot of that is being done now. I, I think it's important to have the perspective of history. My parents were history majors, and maybe that influenced me. But uh, to know the lineage of you know, your genre. Uh, for me, uh, like I said, Elliot Porter was a big influence, Ernest Haas. Uh, doing more abstract type of work and that I've tried to continue in that vein. And it, and it's, uh, uh, encouraging to me to see, uh, that what you might call a fashion, you know, coming back in. In terms of, of people gravitating to photography, um, the community of photographers, I feel like has always been a tight knit one, but I've, I've often wondered, has that always been the case? Do you see the community of, of photographers being more tight knit at, at sometimes more than others? No, but just in a different way. Uh, back during the 80s when Ansel's workshops were going on, well, they started long before that, but when I was in Yosemite, uh, there were workshop programs in Yosemite. There were workshop programs in Carmel. And a lot of the same photographers that were uh, not the main instructors, but assistants to the main instructors, you know, we would see each other often and, and network in that sense. Um, 
through the workshop programs that, that we got involved with. And sometimes just like now, those connections led to, you know, running our own workshops. And I did that for 15, 16 years in the 80s into the 90s, including te- teaching workshops in the Smokies back then. Oh, my neck of the woods. Nice. Right, right. So I would do workshops in, in uh, Acadia and Smokies. I taught for Palm Beach. So I'd, uh, my wife and I were remembering one trip we took where we flew into Atlanta and then rented a car, went up to the Smokies, uh, did a workshop up there, and then back uh, down to Palm Beach to teach for Palm Beach photographic workshops. And so I would, I would make, um, you know, a, a, a travel tour out of uh, combining workshops. You, you've mentioned Ansel's name a few times. Um, what was the most impactful thing that he taught you? It doesn't even have to be pertaining to photography, although it could be. Well, I think the the passion he had for his work, his work ethic is a, a big factor. Um, maybe not in the best way because he, he never stopped working and I, I have that problem myself. Um, people that were Ansel's assistants uh, knew that Ansel was... Um, tended to work, you know, straight through the week and including weekends. So they'd have to be ready if, if Ansel was going to the, into the dark room, they had to get in there and, you know, get the developer and, and get the dark room set up. Um, I think his vir- environmental act- activism was pretty inspirational to me. Um, not that I'm that much of an activist, but uh, using photography to, to influence his people's perspective on nature, the value of, of, uh, the natural world, be it, you know, right outside in, in a local area or national parks or vast wildernesses like in Alaska or Antarctica. So those were big influences and his work was of course, very inspirational. And, and the thing about his work that inspired me was his ability to combine, um, uh, his photographic vision, if you will, with incredible technique. And that, you know, influenced me to, you know, pay attention to the technique. When I took classes in college uh, in the 70s, I had a professor that was not a fan of Ansel Adams, was a New Yorker teaching at the University of Colorado and and fairly urban-based photographer, which was fine, but he didn't like color and he didn't like Ansel. And I had to, to kind of deal with that um, perspective. And it, and it helped me define, you know, a, a direction kind of opposite of what he was uh, trying to steer people towards. What was challenging of dealing with that? Well, well, first of all, just taking the courses, I had to learn to talk about photography which is difficult. And, uh, you know, he wanted me to try things that I wasn't particularly comfortable with. And it was a black and white course. So I was so interested in color photography. I've, I've learned that you could tone photographs. So, you know, when I turned in portfolios f- for assignments, you know, I, I'd buy some toner and, you know, I'd, I'd basically have a, 
a blue toned photo, black and white photograph, <laughs> which really messed with his head. But uh, to his credit, by the time I it took two semesters with this one professor, and we weren't really at odds, but you know he was challenging me to think differently, and I was kind of resisting. When we had our final portfolio review in his office, I remember this distinctly. This is in Boulder, and um, you know he was judging my my prints and talking about that that part I don't remember at all. But he got to the point where he realized that I had a passion for a certain type of subject and that he uh, had a, a large shelves full of photographic books. You know, he turned around and, and started pulling some books off the shelves. In a sense, he was saying, uh, you know, I resigned from uh, selling my perspective and I respect your perspective. And here's a book by Minor White. Here's a book by Wynne Bullock. Here's a book by Edward Weston. And if you're into that kind of photography, you need to look at these people's um, work. So that was ultimately a positive experience. It helped me to find my direction um, by resisting his direction in a sense, being a stubborn redhead at you know age 21 or whatever it was, 22. Do you think he has one of your prints on his wall now? Absolutely not. <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't know where he is, but uh, back to the thought about technique uh, makes me think of uh, something I learned from um, the great photographer, Jerry Yulsman, who was a good friend of Ansel's and taught at his workshops and who I got to know and am still friends with, um, who does very different types of photography than Ansel. He does uh, composite imagery, uh, very surreal uh types of imagery and the general influence in college fine art photography programs was you know more grainy maybe not so sharp etc and and not so focused on technique but more focused on concept but jerry was able to do both and he was very interested in being the phenomenal artistic photography was and also have phenomenal technique. He would actually call Ansel's studio and, and ask questions about, you know, processing things in the darkroom. So that was a that was a big influence on me. Do you think your influence taught them anything? Um, anybody in particular? Well, Ansel or some of the other photographers that you've mentioned that, that you spent time with or hung out with back then? Uh, gosh, I don't know. Um, I know that Jerry really enjoyed my work and encouraged me quite a bit. And, and in fact, we traded photographs. Um, and he had photo, Jerry Yulsman had photographs of mine on his wall. So that was a great honor. And he always teased me because all of his images are composites. He would look at an image of mine he especially liked and say, I don't know how you did that with one frame. And, you know, I'm in my late 20s and eating that up like crazy. Um, so, but particular influence on them, I, I, I would say that would be pretty minimal. 
you, you at least that I ever heard about. You've mentioned composites uh, a couple times. I, I think it's kind of a trigger word for photographers right now with the improved technology, if you want to call it that, or um, furthered technology and post-processing and uh, in-camera systems that are on sale now. I know, look, people uh, drop skies in, they distort the size of things and their images where, where is taking composites going too far to you? Oh my gosh, where the line is, uh, for me, for my photographs, it's, um, it's pretty traditional. I'm not going to drop in skies. You know, I might clone out a, a thing or two that are distractions, you know, a branch on the edge. I neglected to to crop out in the field. Um, I have on maybe I can think of one photograph, two photographs that where I uh, removed. Um, one of them was a small building, very small in scale in the photograph that I actually took out. And nobody's ever seen that photograph, so it's not it's not out there. <laughs> Another photograph that I have published a lot is, is was taken up in Maine and uh, with a four by five, and it was um, near a parking lot. And and later on, when I saw the film, I realized there were some uh, windshields kind of poking through some of the branches in the photographs, like an upper corner very tiny section where I didn't want that to show if I made a, a big print of it. So, you know, I took a, a tiny uh, speck of windshields that were in between some very small scale tree trunks out. That's about the limit. Um, I'm all for interpreting, interpreting a photograph creatively, but I'm also uh, a fairly straight photographer in, in kind of belief in the integrity of my subject that I want to convey my experience, which was the interaction between something I'm totally amazed by and, um, you know, I want that, want that feeling to come through. That was a very politically correct answer. Well, <laughs> I am fine with people doing what they feel they need to do creatively if they're presenting nature as uh you know with the full integrity of what they saw and but in fact they've changed everything in terms of scale or sky or whatever you know there there's a deception factor on it that makes me quite nervous to um but i also feel that people when digital photography came along you know, that was the discussion, you know, what's the veracity of the subject is if it's digital and it's pixels, you know, is that, you know, is that bastardizing the, the photographic process with the, with the idea that as if film was reality. So the, the fact that, you know, film distorts, uh, the contrast range of a subject, you know, is, is, um, you know, the film sees things differently than our eyes do. So is that an abstraction? Is that unreal? So it's a, it's a crazy uh, philosophical hole to go down. 
which is kind uh, of circular. So people have to decide their own uh, goals and their own truth and how they want to present that to people. And then the audience is left to judge. And I have seen photographs that, you know, I thought were amazing. And and then you find out something's been changed and it, it lessens the impact to me. Well, well, something you said, um, you said it may, it makes you nervous. I, I want to get your thoughts on this. And I, I believe I've shared this somewhere that, that I don't know, I'm a talking head either on the podcast or on YouTube, but sharing that the path that, that currently continues to go down in terms of, we'll use the example of dropping in skies um, and manipulating an image that way. I, I'm a, it makes me nervous that it degrades the value of an image. And I'm not talking about in, in you know, financial aspects or monetarily. I'm, I'm afraid that it degrades it in trust between photographers and the you know, general audience of people who look at images. Yeah, it's, it's a problem. It's something that will play itself out and, and, you know, the marketplace in some way will determine that or social media will determine that it, it's, um, I, I don't have a good answer for it. You just have to decide you decide for yourself, you know, who is, uh, who you feel is tricking you. And if that bothers you, 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 uh, uh, change your course into, in terms of who you follow, perhaps, uh, the, the problem comes from me. I mean, my background tends to be natural history, stock photography, and, and people want to know what, um, what the reality is. If you're publishing, uh, a photograph, for example, national geographic, and I had this experience with them where I had a, a digital file and, and the requirement to be published by them. And I'm not sure how they do it now. This was 20 plus years ago, but they wanted to see, well, maybe not quite that long ago, maybe late nineties. Um, they wanted to see the raw file so they could determine if I went too far, they didn't give me you know, any guidelines. It was whatever internally they had on their radar for, you know, truth and advertising, so to speak. If you're representing a, a place uh, editorially as the real thing with the real uh, scale and the real skies, then, you know, it, in an editorial situation, that's, it's important to be truthful. In, um, in art in general, it's, it's pretty wide open. It's up to people to uh, define those approaches in their own work if they want to, or keep it hidden. Uh, if you know that's that's their approach. I would love to be selfishly a fly on the wall in in one of those discussions on if somebody has taken it too far or not. Just not because you know I want to see somebody's work get, you know, nixed and, and thrown out, but just to hear people's thoughts, because I always feel like 
even if you don't take one side or the other, I think if you posted a general poll on this topic, the closer it gets to 50-50, and I think it, it does kind of lay out that way and, and how I see it at least uh, being posed on social media, getting close to a 50-50 mark of, let's say, 100 people who are polled, I think that just really provides a, a, an interesting conversation, not one side is right, one side is wrong, but but an interesting conversation where thoughts are shared back and forth. And and I, I don't know about you, but I would love to hear a discussion on that and, and even join in. Yeah, that would be fascinating to hear how people view their own work and, and how concerned they are about um, what outside opinions are. Uh, probably not generally and that people aren't too concerned about that. And again, it depends on the context. You know, what is social media? Is that presenting natural history? Huh. You know, it can be if you're uh, uh, the, uh, some environmental organization, Audubon or, or uh, something like that, and you're, you know, presenting an animal that's captive as wild, then you know, that's a problem. Or the contests like BBC wildlife contest, you know, people have been caught doing um, things that were not according to the rules of, you know, ethical editorial photography. Hey guys, I just want to pause real quick and tell you about a really fun opportunity that you have as a photographer. Both William and I are talking with you on the podcast right now. You can also hear both of us at the upcoming Out of Chicago Live that's occurring April 9th through 11th, 2021. We are both going to be presenting. We are also both going to be on the same panel with photographers like TJ Thorne, Charlotte Gibb, and Sean Bagshaw. I'm really looking forward to that discussion. Not only that, but we're also going to be presenting in that conference. So if you're finding this conversation really intriguing and helpful for your photography, be sure and go to outofchicago.com and sign up for that live conference that lasts three days and you get access to tons of different presentations, panel discussions, and keynote talks. All right, back to the episode. I was reading up on your bio and I knew about you, but I wasn't aware, and you mentioned this before, of the time, the amount of time that you've lived in the Yosemite National Park area. Um, I wondered before we even jumped on and started talking, can a location like that determine your style? Well, sure. Uh, you know, I think you can learn as much you can learn from the landscape and and in the context of my uh, exposure to Ansel Adams and all the great photographers, I've had the experience of uh, world famous photographers coming to Yosemite and feeling um, that they can't, you know, they can't do what's already been done. So they're intimidated by it. And when I heard people of great fame talking that way, it really struck me in my mid-20s as a, as a challenge. I said, well, you know, Yosemite is 
not just half dome and LCAP. And so largely most of the years I've been here, I've focused on you know, more personal and more intimate views of Yosemite. And that, that's been edu educational to me, you know, just in, in the spiritual aspect of, of being in such a place, such a sanctuary. Well, it, it challenges you to look past the cliches. And I had the experience once of uh, being contacted by the Sierra Club and they wanted me to, being a Yosemite photographer, they assumed I had a lot of icons and I'd probably been photographing the, in the park for at least 15 years. And they wanted photographs of the, the waterfalls and Half Dome, et cetera. And they knew my work and they wanted to use my work and I didn't have what they wanted. So I spent those years, uh, you know, trying to work past the cliches. I didn't have a photograph of Yosemite Falls in the summer. You know, I didn't have uh, uh, the classic images that they were looking for. And that was rewarding to me. <laughs> I lost a job and I, I, you know, kind of defined my, my perspective. It just illustrates how I was thinking at the time. Have you always been someone who gravitates towards challenges like that? Uh, well, I don't, not until I, you know, look back at it. So yeah, I would say looking back, I would say, yes, yeah, sure. Um, and uh, back to the photography professor, you know, he, he was very much an advocate for black and white and the, the photographers he showed me were black and white. And, and the challenge I've put to myself is I wanted to make photographs like minor white that had the same uh, abstractness and mystery, but I wanted to do in color, you know, because the professors, you know, was essentially saying, you know, you can't, you can't do good work in color. And I thought that was pretty stupid. So, you know, that, yeah. So yes, I took on challenges like that. It almost sounds to me like you take on challenges, but you also challenge other people to see your vision of the landscape, the outdoors. Yeah, it's not a challenge. It's just a, a sharing. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, uh, this is another way to see Yosemite. And, you know, Yosemite Valley, in spite of all the people that go there, can be quite a peaceful place if you walk a... 10 minutes away from the road <laughs> where most people gravitate to. Yeah. Or where the photo iconic places are. The reason I ask it is I had an experience. Um, well, it was two years ago, I would say. Um, I am so used to photographing the forest of East Tennessee and, and the old mountains of the smoky mountains that, that you've been to. I know and um, took a trip just for a few days out to Joshua Tree National Park. And out there, I was totally out of my element, could not see a composition to, to save my life, and really struggled. It had a great time while I was out there, for sure. But, but it just got me thinking. And it's something, uh, honestly, that I've been thinking about over the past few years is, is does location, does it, does it, I don't want to say trap you. Does it 
push you to a certain subject matter? And is there a way to break out of that? Well, you know, it depends on on your focus. Um, thinking of Joshua Tree, you know, I was there on an assignment for Canon once photographing their corporate calendar. And, and you know, I had to make photographs that would be good calendar images, you know, but I also, you know, switched into my telephoto landscape mode and, and did smaller scenes and details that were more for me. So the, the, I guess it's kind of a skill based on, you know, my career of, of, you know, doing some assignments or doing stock photography to have to see things in multiple ways. So that's where Yosemite comes in as a teacher is that, you know, I'd love to find the intimate landscapes in Yosemite, but also, you know, if the, if there was God light on El Cap, you know, I was damn well going to photograph it. <laughs> not, not to turn my eyes, to avert my eyes because it's not a small landscape. How many images did you submit out of that project to Canon? Oh, gosh. Um, I don't know, maybe 50 or 100 slides, 35 millimeter slides. Okay. Okay. So they had a pretty good amount to sift through to get down to 12. Yeah. Yeah, they did. And, um, you know, the, this doesn't happen much anymore, but I, I traveled to many locations that they wanted me to go photograph. They were donating money to, uh, national parks, specific national parks. Um, I went to mammoth caves, for example, and got, you know, a private trip down into the caves or, um, I went to places I probably never would have gone to Gulf islands down on the Florida Gulf coast, mm -hmm. uh, big bend. So I got, you know, I got paid to go travel and make landscape photographs. It's pretty deluxe. Those days are gone. <laughs> those days. Yes. Those days are gone. Um, I, I, something I read in, in your bio on your website, um, kind of inferred or implied you implied, I inferred, that um you have a, a um a slower approach to the landscape seeing compositions that come to you rather than going at them i've heard people on the podcast refer to um their photography style as um a rush an, an adrenaline rush hunting um and, and kind of going full throttle at a location that they're trying to get can you be can you be an inspired photographer if you do both types well you can it's a skill that you have to develop and and i've probably forgotten that skill like the canon assignment i described where, where i was doing both uh, the scenic perspective and and then some personal work um so yeah i think you can I've kind of gravitated towards the more slow side. Um, and it's interesting you say that. I, I do think that I have lost the adrenaline rush of going full throttle at times, unless I'm in, you know, a national park I've never been to for only a few days. And, and I'm rushing to try to get to all the um, fun locations that, that I've seen photographed before. Well, I'm, I'm not much of a planner. I do you know, follow weather patterns and, and seasons. And I know when the dogwood are coming out in Yosemite, uh, but 
by and large, I go as an explorer and I always find something that thrills me. So I don't worry about it. You know, if I get up at sunrise, you know, I might see some great clouds lit up and all that, but, um, and hopefully I'll be there for that if something magical happens. But um, I know, you know, I don't want to be that um, over planning and over focused and not, um, not receptive to other things. And I think probably my favorite photograph of Dawn Lake Louise um, illustrates that because I, I went, you know, on a, on a trip and I was working on a book project and I, but I was at Lake Louise and wanted to do the classic sunrise and it was August and I got up super early to get there before the sun rose and the clouds were down over the glacier, the glaciers behind the lake there. And, and what I had hoped would happen did not happen. And, you know, I'd gotten up, I'd set up on the side of the lake and what I anticipated happening didn't happen. And so I, I took a, an idea almost subconsciously. I took two frames with the four by five, one vertical and one horizontal and, and just went on autopilot and, and moved on, you know, left, went back to the campsite and had breakfast. So, um, you know, looking back, uh, you know, the photograph is my favorite photograph. It's one of my best-selling photographs, and I can barely remember taking it. I, after a three-week trip from here in Yosemite to the, the Canadian Rockies and back, I took a lot of photographs, lots of four-by-fives. And when the film came back, you know, I got all that film, three weeks of film all at once. I'm going through a few hundred four-by-fives, and, and the image from Lake Louise you know, I get to that one and put it on the light box and I, I couldn't remember much about it. What, which lake, where was I? I was, oh yeah, that's, that's Lake Louise. You know, and it was a photograph that for all the interesting things I photographed on this trip, that trip where I was anticipating seeing this sunrise or this ice cave I photographed or whatever, I had not had any anticipation of that image being uh, something that that would become my all-time favorite. And so it's, it was surprising. And, and looking back, I just realized that I, I let it come to me. I let my skills take over. And, you know, I tried something. I often talk about, you know, working a scene. You know, what do you do when you don't think you have a scene? You know, maybe you try something, but, um, you know, I just tried a couple of frames. Normally, I would have taken more in a couple of frames if I thought I had had a great shot on hand. So it was a, a left to my, my intuition and unconscious self to, to make that image. Is that image in your newest book, Light on the Landscape? Yeah, yeah, it's the opening, opening image. If somebody, if somebody purchases that book, opens it when it comes in the mail, turns to the first page, finds themselves kind of lost in it, what are they going to find throughout the pages of Light on the Landscape? Well, I think uh, just a series of stories. It's uh, a collection of 60 essays from my 
uh, 24 years of writing for Outdoor Photographer, and we combined a few of the essays and, and used the images that were used in the magazine, but expanded upon that. So, you know, the, the book is an extraction of those uh, ideas and stories and images that come to mind, you know, several times a year when I'm on a deadline to, to write uh, the column. And so it's, um, um, you know, lessons that I've learned, uh, thoughts that come to my mind over those, those many years, not just, I didn't just sit down and write the whole book. It was um, a collection of stories that reveal some, you know, simple things in taking landscape photographs, how to work with a, you know, light and how to think about backgrounds and, and lots of real practical things, but also a little, little bit of philosophy tossed in, including stories about the making of uh, the Lake Louise photograph. I mean, that's, that's sifting through articles and over 23 years, it, it had to have been a painstaking process to, to sift through those and pick out the ones that you wanted to include. Well, I had, I had great editors at, at Rocky Nook and, and that helped a lot. I had over a hundred thousand words to deal with. Uh, it was at that time when we started the book, uh, uh, about 135 essays uh-huh. and over a hundred thousand words. So we took that down to, to 60 essays and just under 50,000 words. So yeah, it was, it was a lot of guidance by the, uh, the editorial staff, which really helped. And it's a book that I had planned to do nearly 15 years before I had the idea. And uh, there were some books that inspired me, uh, Galen Rowell's Mountain Light in particular, and an Ansel Adams book called Examples, where, and I got to see this in person, talking to Ansel while he was writing a chapter to uh, Examples and and seeing how he was um, retroactively talking about how he made a photograph. And, and so that kind of guided me as a, as a way to talk about both philosophy and technique, you know, why I was there, what, what the weather was like, why the light was good. Uh, not, it's not an overly technical book in any sense, because I'm, I'm kind of a, a Luddite in in my digital skills. I have very, I have very good, and ve- but very basic skills. I don't know all the all the bells and whistles. Well, where can people go to find more out about you and and also find your book? Uh, well, the best place to go is my website at williamneal dot com. Um, I have a um, a few of the hardbound edition left. Is the collector's editions available? where you can buy for a very reasonable price. Uh, uh, my marketing head kicks in here. Uh, uh, the copy of the book, signed copy of the book, and uh, signed uh, print or prints to go with it. So that's on my website. Also, I highly recommend going to Rocky Nook. Um, if you want to buy the uh, softbound and the ebook, they have a great package. A lot of people like to look at uh, books on on tablets, so they have a package of the softbound plus the ebook. That's a, a bargain. 
so you can have uh, both copies. Uh, but I'm very pleased with the book. The, the reproductions were the best of any book I've ever done. And so that, that I'm excited about. Well, he's William Neal. Uh, William, thank you so much for spending the time coming on and, and talking to us about your views on photography and, and also your experience in it. Thank you very much for having me and, and giving me the chance to uh, speak to you.